Let us rise to read God's word today. Let us learn from it. Let it teach us. Let it heal us. Let it bless us. We're reading from 1 John 3, 13 to 24. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that what, we, what has passed from death to life, excuse me, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what he pleases, what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. May these words be added to your hearts. Please be seated. reading God's word this morning. What a great morning. What a great way to end my internship, my intern pastoring. Last week, the first person I ever baptized over 30 years ago was here. And I end with a friend I met this year by baptizing him. You know, whatever our choices in life, the reverberations they make will always inevitably gather and build until they are ultimately a, forcible, a force expelled. Turn my mic on. Turn my mic on. Is my mic on? Wow. Whatever our choice in life, the reverberations they make will always and inevitably gather and build until they are ultimately and forcibly expelled with a roar. The question for us this morning and the question this month has been, what kind of roar will we be at Thornhill Baptist Church? Will our roar destroy or will it provide? Will it sound like, what will it sound like? What effects will it produce? All of these results are shaped and determined 
by our individual and collective selves and choices. The only doubt, the only uncertainty, the only question before us then is what will we choose? What kind of roar will our lives produce? Our theme passage this month has been Really? Okay. Thank you. I blessed this while I was standing back there. Our theme passage this, week, this month has been, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. We each have choices as to how we will respond to the Lord's call for an offer of revival in our lives. However, knowing our human tendency to overcomplicate things, God has clearly presented us with two simple choices. Both are roars, both have powerful consequences. Both are ours to freely choose, but both are not equal. The first one I call the roar of rejection. Jesus called us to be salt. He called us to be salt of the earth. That is, he called us to add to life around us in a way that is tasteful and that preserves purity and goodness. Sometimes we may reject this call, reasoning it's not our job, or the world doesn't really deserve to be seasoned by salt, or because it's too much work, or simply too hard, and I don't care. Other times we really mean to be salt of the earth, but despite what we consider our meaningful efforts, going to church, praying, reading the Bible, giving financially, Ultimately, we often fail. I would suggest this morning, well, in a very different way, these very things that we attempt and we try to fill ourselves with to be salty actually can be a form of rejection. You see, we accept the, we accept the principle of his call, but we, we refuse to actively live it out. When we do not, not only are we really rejecting his call, but we are becoming what the world really accuses us of all the time, hypocrites. Are you confused? Consider this. Sometimes we can spend so much time and energy accumulating salt, but we never serve as salt. In other words, if, we, if we're not careful, we can work so long and hardy at being salty that our lives become useless. Allow me to illustrate. The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is so salty that it contains no fish or plant life. The high salt content has killed the sea's life. How? The problem is that the Dead Sea has no outlets. Great quantities of water and salt pour into this lake but nothing flows out. 
It is the law of nature that anything, anytime something has many inlets but no outlets, it will produce death. In the same way, this world is full of well-meaning, active, busy, and even full Christians who nevertheless exhibit a dead faith. As James, in, under the Holy Spirit, has penned it, for just as, the, just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It did come up. I just don't know where to push this thing right. James says again, for just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Friends, according to God's scripture, Scriptures, we are to be filled with goodness in order that we may turn around and overflow with goodness to others. Simply learning goodness, learning Scripture, going to church, attending Bible conferences, listening to Christian radio, etc., is not being the salt of the earth. To listen is okay. To learn is okay. But without it being an outlet... It is nothing. Matthew 5.13 says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Jesus is more simply summarizing the warning that the Lord had given to Solomon after he finished building the temple. If you want to take that warning, I want you to read it. Write this down and read it at home. 1 Kings 9, 1 to 9. There's a warning in there where, where God tells Sol Solomon that he, he has heard his cry and he has built the temple and God will live in that temple. And his heart will be with him, with him Solomon, perpetually. But then he goes on to say, but if you turn away from... If you turn away and do not obey my statutes, I will turn my back on you. Well, that's the roar of rejection. And I don't suspect there's a lot of us here, or maybe there is. But there's another roar. It's called the roar of revival. If rather than reject his offer, we who are called by his name embrace and live it, then we and those around us will experience a wonderful healing, restorative and powerful, regenerating roar of revival. Our scripture passage says, if we humble ourselves, pray, seek the Lord's face, and turn from our wrongdoings, then we are promised a glorious revival. When we choose this path and do what is asked of us, we can know without a shadow of doubt that the Lord will respond in three amazing ways. And I want to give you three words, three simple words. First one is here. The first one is here. Our prayers, our cries, our pains and desires and questions and joys will be attentively heard with care and concern from our Heavenly Father if we are a believer in Christ. When we humbly pray and seek his face and turn from our wrongdoings, there is nothing that can come between us and God. It's as if we stand in his presence. We have that confidence. 
If we're praying and seeking his face and turning with the power of his spirit away from our wrongdoings, there is nothing that God doesn't hear from us. John 1, 1 John 3 says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and can receive whatever we ask from him because we kept his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. We have spent eight months in this church hearing from God on how to become Come on, you know. Baptists are so dead. You know, I have, to have, I have to have some of my black brothers and sisters mingle in amongst you. You know, and start, yeah, preach it, Lord. Preach it, preacher. Help him, Jesus. Be the visible Jesus. We have been taught that through the last eight months. John 1, 1 John 1, 5 says this, Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, he he hears whatever we ask. We know that we have what we have asked him for. Each of these words have a two-sided coin. Each of these words have a two-sided coin. The one side is that God hears us when we seek his face. God hears us when we turn from our wrongdoings. God hears us when we pray to him. But the other side of the coin is, do we hear him? Do we hear him speaking to us? We plead for him to hear us. He hears us, and you know he's trying to speak to us, and he speaks to us right through this word. We don't have to go anywhere else but seek God's face in this book. That's how he talks to us. That's how he communicates with us. But are we listening? Are we just gathering information? Or are we really hearing what God has to say? 1 John, I said 1 John 1.5, I won't do that again. I'll give you the second word, forgive. The second word is forgive. A second blessing from God when we humble ourselves, pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from our wrongdoings is the invaluable gift of divine forgiveness. The valuable gift of divine forgiveness. Consider this modern day parable. There once was a a woman who lived a faraway land. Well, actually, she lived just down the street. A secret guarded it. This woman, this woman had a secret and guarded, which was very hidden and important. Her secret was a sack, a large, filthy, tattered sack. Now, she didn't always have this sack, but over time she found she needed something, something for an injustice or two she'd suffered, something for the cross and thoughtless words tossed her way from time to time. Something for the lies she'd been told by a precious friend. Something for the relationship that had soured years ago. For painful childhood memories, regrets, unforgivable mistakes, her own self-criticism 
of never measuring up. She needed something for all of that, a container, a sack. Each night, long after her family had gone to bed and the sounds of sleep were heard throughout the house, when all was quiet and still, this nice woman would creep down to the cellar of her home. Each night in her cold, dark, musty sanctuary, she'd heave that heavy sack up on an old, broken-down card table. Then in the, dim, in the dim of the cellar light, the contents were revisited, almost like dear old friends. She'd pull each one out carefully, reliving the bitterness, the disappointment, the anger, the hurt, until she began to cry and whimper as the anguish overflowed her. Suddenly, a rapping on the cellar door would interrupt her. She knew the knock. It was the king. It was the great king. He had heard her. And sometimes when she heard the knock, she'd scramble back upstairs to bed. Sometimes she'd flick the light out and pretend that she wasn't there. Other times she'd, let him in. she'd call out, Doors open, come on in. He'd walk right into the place. He'd step over the rusty bikes and old toys, past the shelves of canned peaches and green beans. He'd walk right over to that broken-down card table where she and the sack were. He put his arms around her, draw her close, stroke her hair, wipe away all tears, and ask for the sack. She'd nod yes to him. He'd sweep it away all, he'd sweep away all the bitterness and disappointment and anger and hurts off that table, put them into the sack, and shoulder that sack on his way out. A feeling of lightness always followed the great king's visit, taking the sack. It was wonderful. It lasted for days, weeks, and sometimes even months. No more stealing down to the cellar, no more crying, no more sack. Then she'd remembered. A small something would trigger a memory about the soured relationship, the painful childhood experience, self-doubt, and bitterness, disappointment, anger, and hurt would rush in on her again. She needed the sack. She wanted the sack. She wanted it back. And she took it. Again, he would knock gently, come in, wipe away the tears, and take the sack. And again, she would go back and grab it back from him. This went on for many years, until one day, she stopped leaving the, she stopped leaving the cellar door unlatched for the great king. Time went by. The nice woman grew old, tired, small, and frail. Her husband died, leaving her well taken care of. Her two children had grown up, married, and moved away. And that sack, oh, it was still part of her life. Larger, filthier, more tattered, and heavy. So very heavy. One day her daughter called to, to talk. The phone rang and rang and rang. Her daughter got worried, called her brother, and asked him to go check on his mother, on their mother. He did. He looked everywhere. They never found the nice woman. Just a big, old, filthy, tattered sack propped up in an easy chair. 
What is this parable all about? The parable is about that Jesus, the great king, when we go and seek his face and we pray and we turn away from our wrongdoings under the power of his spirit, he comes and takes our sack. He takes it away from from us. Our difficulty is we keep grabbing back. And why do we keep bragging back? Why don't we have the power to let it go? I tell you, it's the other side of the coin. Jesus forgives us. But the reason we keep drawing that sack back is because we don't forgive. We would rather hang on to the sack than forgive. And when we do, it just keeps coming back again and again and again. Forgive. God has forgiven us, and he's calling us as followers of his son. Forgive those who have trespassed against you. We pray that every day, if you're my age, in school. Forgive those who have trespassed against us. And when we don't, we have this huge sack that we keep grabbing. Do you know this woman? Or someone like her? Or perhaps you? Have you pushed upon the latches of pride, avoidance of God, and the temptations of evil that lock the door to your heart? So the big king can't come in? Listen, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. And 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what happens when we believe in the cross, when we believe in the crucifixion, when we believe in the resurrection, and we follow my friend Richard and invite the king, the great king, to come into our life and change us. And then follow through with what God tells him to do. Be baptized. I'll tell you, there's a a sack off of his shoulders. I know it because he's talked to me about how he felt this great heaviness lifted from him. Forgive. Accept God's forgiveness and then be an instrument of forgiveness. Two words I have for Christians. This word for me, this Bible for me, is simple. It comes down to two words. Grace and reconciliation. Third word, quickly. Heal. Whoops. Heal. Having heard our prayers and forgiven our sins then the Lord will also heal our land. But what does that mean today in the 21st century? What if I don't have any land? Contrary to some who get carried away with such proclamations, let me me get it a little more clear. 
contrary to some of those great TV evangelists and TV healers and those who stand out and make these great proclamations, nowhere does the Lord our God promise you material things. Nowhere in this book does God promise you material things. And those who proclaim it are wrong. Rather, the Lord offers us something much, much more precious, something of eternal value that cannot be tarnished, lost, or stolen. He offers us, He gives us spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He gives us spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Throughout human history, including today, land has been used as a symbol for one's health, prosperity, and and even virtue. Throughout the Old Testament, land is used as a sort of spiritual barometer. How the people treated, respected, and used the land that God had given them was a symbol of their respect for the loyalty and their loyalty to God. Similarly, we see in the Old Testament that both the amount and health of the land given to God's people was blessed or cursed in accordance with their spiritual lives and choices. In accordance with their spiritual lives and choices. Your spiritual blessings that God has for you, that Jesus has for you, will be in direct relationship to your spiritual life and choices. It is important here that we don't lose sight of the fact that this promise is made upon the completion of the temple. The temple was completed. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in whom you have from God? You are not your own. You in this room who are a follower of Jesus Christ are the 21st century temple where God dwells, where God resides. Let me read one verse from 1 Kings chapter 9 talking about the temple. Remember now, I'm reading this, and you are the temple if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are the temple. Listen to this. Listen to this. The Lord said to him, Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, you, with what you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Do you get it? Do you get the picture? That if you're a follower of Christ, you are his temple. And he makes his name in your temple forever. And his eyes and his heart are perpetually with you. He never goes away and leaves you. We often think he does, but he doesn't. 1 Corinthians, we just read that. I won't do it again. I don't want to run out of time here. Let me say this in closing. With the coming and the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, it is now we ourselves who serve as God's holy temple. Our health and our and our healing, especially emotionally and spiritually, therefore, 
is directly dependent on our having and maintaining a right and vibrant relationship with Jesus. R.G. Lee, I've heard this before, I've never used it, but I've heard it before, so I thought, mm, after 30 years, maybe I'll use it. R.G. Lee once said, if the sleeping folk will wake up, if all the lukewarm folk will confess up, if all the disgruntled folk will warm up, if all the depressed folk will cheer up, if all the estranged folk will make up, if all the gossipers will shut up, if all true soldiers of Christ will stand up, if all the dry bones will shake up, if all the church members will pray up, then we have revival. You notice each one of those things is an individual. Revival starts with individuals. It doesn't start as a collective group. There isn't some miracle God, Holy Spirit thing that will fall down in this room right now and everybody will be singing hallelujahs and speaking in tongues. Oh, I forgot I'm in a Baptist church. No, but God will revive each of you personally and it will catch fire. Revival starts with one. What kind of roar will your life produce? What kind of roar will our life as a church produce? What kind of roar, what kind of roar will Pastor Ken come home to? Will he come home to a roar of revival? Will he come home to a church is different than when he left? Will he come home to a church that is starting to hear God and starting to move within themselves? Will he come home to a revival? Because it will only be in each one of you individually. Thus ends the lessons from Pastor Gary. It's been a year since I first preached in this church. It's been eight months that I've preached every week, save a few. What kind of revival will Ken come home to? Let's see this video.